0: Alex, we have the best fans. They take our show extremely seriously, uh, obviously. In light of my embarrassing failure to be able to say uh, the German law that shall not be named last week, uh, we had we had someone write in.
1: Yeah, here, here it is. Hi,
0: Evelyn. Hi, Alex. This is Timo from Berlin. I even have an umlaut in my last name, so I'm absolutely qualified to help you with the pronouncer for the NetzDG. The German pronunciation for it is... Netzwerk Durchsetzungsgesetz. I hope you can have fun with that. Bye. So we want
1: to thank you, uh, Timo, for for saying that in. Uh, and this will become a standard part of the soundboard whenever we talk about European law in the future. It's
0: perfect. Uh, it saves saves everyone from having to hear me try and butcher the German language uh, and, and not make too many German enemies. See. Excellent. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. yeah. Welcome to Moderated Contents, a weekly news update from the world of trust and safety with myself, Evelyn Doeck, and Alex Stamos. And we are heading today straight to our TikTok TikTok. And to help us talk through this, we've got someone, you've heard his name in the credits, and now it's time to meet him in the disembodied voice, John Perino, which is Stanford Internet Observatory's own policy analyst. Thank you very much for joining us, John.
2: Thanks for having me on. It's nice to go from the show notes to the podcast.
0: Yeah, you're, you're, you you're, know, you made it. You made it.
2: Welcome.
1: <laughs> it's an upgrade. And if you, if you keep on doing a yeah. good job, we'll make you edit this
0: thing. The reward for good work is always more work. Um...
2: <laughs> Whatever I've got to do to keep the job.
0: So tell us. I mean, the first thing I want to know is, is keeping track of all the various bills and laws to ban TikTok basically your full-time job at this point, apart from occasional podcaster?
2: It could be a full-time job. I mean, we don't know where the TikTok ban is going to go next next to different state capitals. But my goodness, uh, yeah, keeping track of state policy, 50 different states, hundreds and hundreds of policymakers. Yeah, eh, it could be a full-time job.
0: Great. Okay. So tell us about the latest one then and the one that was making uh, all of the headwaves and headlines in the last few days. Let's go to Montana.
2: Sure. Yeah. So in Helena on a Friday afternoon, the Montana state house passed a TikTok ban, essentially. What the bill does is it bans app stores from making TikTok available for download in the state. And it would go into effect beginning of next year, but it's probably gonna run against a whole bunch of different legal challenges. But it doesn't ban users, it bans you know, app stores and would fine them $10,000 for violations for making the app available. And what's really interesting is it actually previously would have banned internet service providers from allowing anyone to access it on their phone, on their laptop. Um, that was actually stripped out but the bill still does not allow TikTok to operate in the state. What that means, I don't really know. Um, so it basically couldn't download it uh, from a Google Play app store. It hasn't been signed into law, but more than likely will. Montana's has a Republican governor, Greg Gianforte. He's previously passed uh, bans at the state government level. Against
0: TikTok. Is
1: he running for president like half <laughs> the Republican governors uh, in
2: the country? We shall see. Um, who knows? That's With a... this
0: popular policy, uh, he'll have the youth vote short up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but basically, you know, this is a Republican backed bill, uh, it basically passed on state um, party line votes in both the House and the Senate. And it was a quick moving bill as well. It was drafted in January formally introduced uh, about a month ago, two months ago on February 20th, and now it's already passed. Uh, that's that's really quick moving. That's a difficult thing about following all these steep bills.
0: Great. And yeah, and it's due to come into force January 1st, 2024, I believe. Highly yeah. unlikely, I think, that it, it ever will. One of the questions we were talking about before we started taping was we were saying that the app stores have argued that this is technically impossible to comply with. The idea that they can stop a single app from being downloaded in a single state. Alex, curious for your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, so I mean, certainly not something to be prevented right now, but uh, I, I think this is probably a losing argument for the platforms uh, for Google and Apple specifically, because certainly with time, you'd be able to figure out a way to do it. I think probably their challenges is a, a couple fold. One, the app stores already treat locations differently and offer you different apps based upon location. And that I think is mostly done by geo IP is done by what your IP address is. Most famously, Apple blocks a ton of stuff in China in the people's Republic of China that is legal everywhere else to be downloaded from the app store. But there are other examples of that. And that's even something that app writers themselves can go in. And when they upload their app, they can uncheck boxes for, I don't want my app to be available in these locations for a variety of, of legal re- reasons and such that geo IP based system is pretty accurate for country barriers, right? So if you're on, even if you're on one carrier, like say in Europe and you're on orange or you're on Deutsche Telekom, if you go from Germany to France, you will probably change IP addresses over just based upon how these networks work with subcontractors and all that kind of stuff. That is not true in the United States. And so when you're talking about mobile devices, you're most, you're often talking about mobile networks. The location of this is a at and address in Montana versus Idaho versus wherever, probably not going to be very accurate. And so your phone does have fine GPS location, but for the most part, that is not used by the app stores. And so if they wanted to do this, they'd probably have to go and violate people's privacy, grab their GPS location, go figure out exactly where they are, and then geoblock only within Montana. So I think it's possible, but it's not possible today. It would require a bunch of code to be written and would require them to to reduce the privacy of their users.
0: Yeah, I got to say though, I think that this is probably going to be the trend. Like we are seeing so many state-based buildings and laws coming along, not just, you know, uh, these kinds of at the applica- uh, at the app store layer, but we've seen all of these content moderation bills, you know, the Texas and Florida laws and things like that. And if some of those are upheld as constitutional, um, we are going to have a situation where we're going to have conflicting state laws about what these companies can do. And that hasn't been a problem yet, but it certainly, you know, could be going forward.
1: I mean, it's sad to see us, you know, for all these laws, for the privacy laws, uh, for the content laws, we're throwing away one of the great competitive advantages of the United States when it comes to internet services, which is- is that we used to be a unified market, right? That you could build one product that operated in 50 states that you had several hundred million people that you could service in a way that is not true in really anywhere else but, say, India, right? And I think that is actually a really, you know, in Europe, one of the reasons they it, it is so hard to start a tech company there is while they do have EU-wide laws, there's a ton of local responsibilities for any employer there uh, and, and even for companies that operate from a content perspective. And so the regulatory, like to end up in this world where if you want to start a company in the United States, you have to have a lawyer as hire number 10 because or eight because you have so many state specific content moderation and other kinds of laws is, is just going to be a huge drag on the U.S. economy.
0: So, John, so many of these bills are, uh, you know, like, won't you think of the children bills? My question is, won't you think of the First Amendment? Has the First Amendment been discussed at all in the conversation in Montana? Like, please tell me that the answer is somewhat yes.
2: Well, I don't think you're going to like the answer because it is yes, but essentially what the Montana Attorney General has said is yes, and we're going to challenge it and try to create a new interpretation of the First Amendment. That seems kind of, you know, bonkers to me, but I'm not the lawyer, so I'm curious what you think about that, (laughs) (laughs) everyone.
0: Yeah. I mean, uh, we've talked a lot about, you know, why I think TikTok bans are unconstitutional flagrantly. So this bill is not helping itself. This bill is just insane. So if you go in, and read it, uh, we'll include a link to it. Um, it's going to be findings, the first Montana
1: bill that talks about NyQuil. And-
0: yeah, it's, it's so good. So in the findings, <laughs> the complaint against TikTok is that TikTok fails to remove and may even promote, uh-oh, dangerous content that directs minors to engage in dangerous activities, including, but not limited to, and then lists a bunch of nuts things, uh, including throwing objects at moving automobiles, lighting a mirror on fire and then attempting to extinguish it using only one's body parts, uh, smearing human feces on toddlers, uh, licking doorknobs and toilet seats to place oneself at risk of contracting coronavirus, uh, attempting to climb stacks of milk crates, and stealing utilities from public places. And I hate to break it to the Montana lawmakers, but unfortunately, content depicting people attempting to climb stacks of milk crates is definitely protected speech. I'm not going to say it's a significant contribution to democratic discourse, but it is something that we allowed to view uh, without uh, interference by the government. So So it seems like
1: there's, I mean, two big differences between this and the Restrict Act. Mm -hmm. One is, you know, the Restrict Act is specifically about national security. It is about privacy. It has been written by people who understood that there was going to be a First Amendment Challenge And so they explicitly kept a lot of the content-based stuff. And here it just says the word content is right there in the first sentence. Right?
0: Yeah, <laughs> dangerous um, content. But <laughs> that the others, well-known, yeah. unprotected yeah. category of speech. Under, dangerous right, exactly. content. Yeah.
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. It might be just be bad stuff, right? Yeah. Um, but the second is, because it's a state law, is there anything constitutionally that makes it less likely that, they, that this will survive muster than, say, the Restrict Act or something passed at the federal level?
0: Uh, I mean, there's going to be the dormant commerce clause issues. We were sort of talking about these before about the fact that you know, if it's not technically feasible uh, to just ban it in a single state and it causes too much of an interference with other states' jurisdictions and, and speech in other states, then that could raise a dormant commerce clause challenge to this as well. But otherwise, I mean, I think the First Amendment issues are basically uh, the same and basically as grim for this bill as the others. But your mention of the restrict restrictor, Act reminds me, John. I wanted to ask you a bit about what's happening on the Hill at the moment. We haven't sort of talked about it for a while, but you know, the the restrict act was barreling along the last time we talked about it. So, what's going on now?
2: Well, you know, the, the last thing to really happen on the restrict act actually happened in the Wall Street Journal with an op ed that the lead sponsors of the bill put out, basically arguing that yes, our legislation is okay under the First Amendment. But the fact that they had to publish something in the Wall Street Journal arguing, hey, yeah, our bill is legally okay, kind of goes to say something. Because what we saw is this huge upswing in free speech and libertarian kind of opposition to any move against banning TikTok either outright or through some kind of a national security review. So in Washington right now, it's kind of wishy-washy. There is a lot of momentum going into the TikTok hearing. And now all of a sudden, it's kind of fizzled out. So I think the big question is, is the Montana state legislation going to spur renewed calls in Washington? And, you know, I think it's anyone's guess at this point.
0: Okay, so anything else we should be watching or that you'll be watching for us on this front?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be watching to see what happens at the state level across the country. Like you said, I mean, that's a full time job. So there are, you know, lots of other groups that are are looking out there and trying to find out what's happening. And these bills move really quickly, as was previously said. And I think that, yeah.
1: The, the labador, laboratories of democracy. Right. Uh, although <laughs> it doesn't doesn't mean that there's not a mad scientist uh, cooking something up in that laboratory.
2: And I think the other thing to look at at the federal level, actually, there's there's two things, I think, to look at on the federal level. One is dichotomy of bills like the Restrict Act, which don't outright ban TikTok. They, they take a, a wider approach to this of looking at... Any kind of technology with ties to foreign adversaries, so China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, etc. And then there's the explicitly anti-TikTok mans um, with names like no TikTok on US devices and anti-social CCP. And I don't really see those moving, even though the Republicans have control of the lower chamber. Where I see this going is the big question of is the U.S. going to try and force TikTok to sell or ByteDance, their parent company with Chinese ties, to sell? And is that even possible, right? And I think one small piece in the Montana bill that's really important is that if TikTok was forced to be sold off to a a U.S. company, or really I think the way that the bill words it is any non-foreign adversary, then everything in the bill would be negated, right? Right. So is that possible? I don't know, but I think that's really the big question and and the, 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 focal point that we'll see
0: in the debate going forward. Awesome. Well, thank you for keeping tabs on that for us and bringing us the update. Thank you both. Okay. So Alex, last week we talked about the Discord server where a big leak of US national security documents occurred. And this week uh, the platform released a blog post about its response to the incident. Now it's still pretty high level and vague because it says, you know, investigations are ongoing, but we're starting to get a little bit more color around uh, the content moderation challenges here and, and the company's response. And I think there's sort of two distinct issues. There's, you know, the issue of intelligence documents being leaked. And then there's the fact that this was, you know, a racist server with lots of racist memes that that breached Discord's terms of service. Um, and, you know, the company wanted to make clear that both are against its terms of service um, and it didn't catch them. We've seen people sort of saying, you know, that, I don't know, the intelligence community or Discord should be more proactively monitoring for leaks like this. What's your, what's your take on it?
1: Yeah. So you, Hit the nail on the head, which is Discord is really dealing with a two-front war now uh, that they've been part of these leaks. Uh, We should tell everybody who... Listens to this podcast knows that the leaker was arrested and and there was no new indication that he's, you know, an intelligence plant or whatever. It looks like the assumptions and the Bellingcat report that this was all based upon showing off to his friends turns out to be accurate, right? So there were some people who were thinking like, oh, this is actually FSB or SVR and they're just trying to run it through discord or whatever. But no, it turns out that that was accurate. So like you said, they're, they're fighting a two front war here. The first is on you know, people making these claims that like Discord needs to be monitored more or Discord needs to monitor for classified data. No platform monitors for classified data. Why? Because there's no way to tell if something's classified or not, right? So in this situation, you're talking about photos of pieces of paper that have markings, like somewhere in Times New Roman or Helvetica, it says TS, SCI, no foreign, a couple other, you know, codes for what compartment in the TSSCI situation, what classified compartment these documents are in, that is trivially fakeable. It's also trivially removed if somebody knew that, that things are being classified by those, right? And so that there's nothing to hold onto for even for a human moderator. If a human being looks at here's a piece of paper of a map of Ukraine and somebody marked TSSCI on it, of telling whether that's actually classified or not, and so if you if a human being can't tell, certainly you can't build algorithms that could tell. People have come up. I've heard some crazy ideas, uh, and they are crazy about using you know, some of like photo DNA and other perceptual hash uh, algorithms to do this kind of stuff that would require the U S government providing a perceptual hash for every classified document, uh, which is, this is not going to happen. I can't see any problems with
0: right. that. How could that go wrong? Right. Which could <laughs> go wrong in
1: many, many ways. Partially that the government doesn't have one repository of classified docs. Right. So you'd have to create like, here is the place you have to bring. It was like, you know, you might as well put a huge neon side spies apply to work here. here.
0: here.
1: (laughs) And then the other is that perceptual hashes are not built for that threat model, right? Like a perceptual hash is supposed to be. So if you have a, a piece of CSAM, you can reduce it into a numerical set that does not immediately jump out to somebody as being CSAM, but, people have demonstrated that, especially photo DNA, but even some of the more modern perceptual hashes with new ML generation systems, you can now create, recreate the images that come in so there. So it's like, that would be, an incredibly stupid idea for the U.S. government to publish photo DNA hashes or classified documents because you're just triggering a huge amount of research into into doing that into reversing. So, like, short of something ridiculous like that, there's really no good solution on the on the classified side. But the other thing that Discord is trying to talk about here is, I think, what they're realizing is that the the fact that they're in the news and they're in the news for As Casey Newton said, he's like, I I Googled Thug Shaker and it turns out to not be great, right? Like it is like a, a, you know, a racist meme that you can have 20 or 30, you know, teenagers uh, effectively and young National Guardsmen hanging out and they could, you know, get a little racist and they can, you know, yell anti-Semitic stuff while they're at the gun range and all that kind of stuff. And Discord has an interesting trust and safety model in that they're kind of like Reddit in which if you run a server, you are mostly responsible for the moderation, but they do have a baseline level of moderation they do everywhere, right? So I've confirmed with them, like they do child safety work no matter, you can't opt out of doing child safety work, right? But you can decide that you're, you're not going to look for certain kind of racist messages and hate speech and such. And I know this for a fact because my class is taught on Discord, because my students can go build systems in which they can generate a bunch of like hate speech and then they can build bots to detect it. And we don't have to worry about discord front running our students and detecting any of this stuff because they don't, right? Obviously my students are not gonna upload CSAM. We use uh, pictures of kittens versus adult cats. That's how we do uh CSAM. It's like, it's a naked kitten. Uh, from a classifier perspective but like short of that like you could get away with a lot if you're running a discord server yourself and if everybody who's part of the discord server is basically in on it and nobody is reporting and so i think this is a a, a smart move for them to put this blog post out but they are going to have this challenge now going forward which is you know every reporter in the world is trying to now infiltrate you know underground discord and you know every the new york times loves to run we saw something online we did not like and there's plenty on discord that the new york times is not going to like
0: only clothed kittens in Discord servers uh, from, from now on. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> well,
1: at, at least for CS152. For our <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess most people aren't opting out of the uh, the racist uh, content moderation for uh, academic purposes, I, I, I would be guessing. Yeah. yeah, and then they have all of these other issues around audio content moderation being uh, significantly harder right. than the Reddit text-based content moderation as well.
1: Right. They have audio, they have video too. You have to pay for like to upgrade the server, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot, they've, they've got a lot going on. Um, and the fact that you've got lots of young people using it, meaning it's a real challenge. I I think, you know, from my perspective, it is reasonable for them to let people run, you know, servers like this one, like it, yes, it sucks, but like, I don't think we should go around in police and you're not gonna make 17 year olds less racist by going and shut down all their discord servers, right? I think from my perspective, what they really need to think about is on the child safety side because they do have so many teenagers, they do have so many young people. That is is a reasonable area of focus is where adults are, you know, in this case, the kids were grooming the adult to leak them classified information, but you could see that grooming going the other way in a sexual context and that, that being really, really bad.
0: Okay, so huge news this week, Alex. Substack CEO Chris Best emerged from under a rock where he'd been for the last five years, apparently, uh, and answered questions on The Verge's Dakota podcast um, that showed he had somehow managed to be the last person on earth who hadn't heard about the content moderation headaches that come with being a platform CEO or hadn't really thought about them. This is in the context of Substack launching Twitter-style platform Substack Notes, and Nilay Patel asked him a bunch of questions about content moderation and Chris just basically refused to answer. So he was asked, we should not allow brown people in the country. Uh, would, would, would that be allowed on, on Substack notes? And Chris replied, I'm not going to get get into gotcha content moderation, to which Neil I replied, this is not gotcha, I'm a brown person. Right. <laughs> and uh, Chris just said he had a blanket policy of saying, I don't think it's useful to get into, would you allow this or that thing on Substack? And you know, this is in the context of like the number one thing that a lot of people want around content moderation is transparency. And so if you can't even tell us uh, what is or is not allowed within your rules, that's uh, that's step one, fail. But did you watch this? Have you heard this interview, Alex? And what are your thoughts on it?
1: Yeah, I've listened to the podcast. It's on Decoder uh, with Nina Patel. It's a fantastic podcast. It's a great podcast to listen to every week, but I strongly recommend our listeners listen this week. It's about an hour interview with Chris Best. There's a lot in there. so. I'm gonna have to say, I am not neutral on Substack right now. Uh, And I'm not neutral for the exact same reasons that uh, Nile was pulling out of Best, which is that Substack has effectively given up on their responsibility to do any kind of content moderation, not just on the notes feature, but on their fundamental feed uh, product, their, their newsletter product. Because they've got the theory, and Best kind of explains this, that effectively all the bad stuff that happens online is driven by online advertising and driven by algorithmic feeds. And so because uh, newsletters at least are not algorithmic and they don't have advertising that, you know, effectively you can have run a free speech platform and everything will be fine. This is a theory that has been pushed by one of your uh, old Harvard uh, colleagues. And it was like, an irritating thing when I heard it quoted at me by academics and NGO folks who were just trying to make themselves feel better uh, and trying to feel morally superior to anybody who's ever worked for an advertising-supported product. But then it was just irritating. Now we're seeing it weaponized, right? Like this theory that everything comes because of online advertising, that that is the only thing that has ever caused anything bad online is now being used by Substack as an excuse. Substack, in my opinion, has a greater responsibility for the content they carry than the vast majority of platforms because they are directly paying the content creators right? The entire model here is you give a credit card number to Substack. Substack keeps something like 20% or 30%, and then they pass the rest of the money through. They do a direct ACH transfer of money into the bank account of the person who's writing the blog. As of right now, uh, one of the top posts from one of the top Substacks is a 42 minute video uh, made by a substacker about one of our colleagues that is just completely full of lies that is intended to try to ruin her life, to try to make it, people think that she is this horrible person. He has called her one of the most dangerous people in America, which is pretty clearly a call for violence when you call somebody one of the most dangerous people in America. And it is 42 minutes of bullshit, right? Of complete and total misinterpretations of things she said and just making stuff up about her. He is being paid thousands of dollars a month by Substack. Substack is taking credit cards and then paying this man thousands of dollars a month in the same way that the New York Times pays their employees. And so from my perspective, Substack has a much greater level of responsibility because they are creating an economic model where this person can incite violence to one of my colleagues, can say all these things about her that are, are not true and can make that an economically viable model because he is able to build an audience on Substack. So, I'm just gonna speak to people who work at Substack, if you're listening, one, your CEO is totally wrong. He is working off of a completely incorrect assumption about what causes abuse online. And this is not going to hold. I'll just, I have seen this over and over again. I saw this at Facebook, um, I saw it at Yahoo. uh, We have seen it with Cloudflare. We've seen it with other companies that try to kind of wipe their hands of the responsibility of content. And it always ends in tears. Um, and that is going to happen here. Something horrible is going to happen because of Substack. And it is going to be much harder for Substack to figure out what to do then than to have reasonable policies right now about the kind of content they are going to pay for. Again, they are paying people for content. They're paying them. It, it, like the idea that advertising is the only bad thing that's ever existed is just completely and totally ridiculous. And so I, I definitely think we should listen, everybody should listen to this, this podcast, uh, Decoder. And I think People should tell Substack whether or not they want this kind of content to be up there for pay. And uh, I think people who are Substackers or who are writers on Substack are really going to have to think about whether this is a platform if they want to be on. When you look at the top 10 and you look at the kind of disconnection from the truth that a number of the people in the top 10 have, um, it's starting to get really, really uh, not just kind of frustrating from a disinformation perspective, but actually dangerous when you have individuals who are going after individual people and trying to destroy their Yeah,
0: lives. And I mean one of the other remarkable things about the interview was that he just wouldn't own it. Like if you're gonna be the kind of guy that just wants to let this stuff be on your platform, then at least own it openly and say, yes, we are, you know, this is what Parler or Truth Social or whatever did. They said this is our values, this is who we are, this is what we want to promote and be. Whereas in this interview, he just kept dodging the question and didn't want to say, Yes, this is this is who we are.
1: Yeah. Which worked fantastic for Mark Zuckerberg of like kind of dodging, you know, I'm gonna you know a, of trying to not be responsible for content moderation that worked out great. It's just, it's incredibly stupid for them to like, you look at all of these examples and they're glomming onto this idea that like, if they don't do an algorithmic feed, that's the funny thing is that notes is effectively algorithmic, right? Like it's got a discovery mechanism built in it. So they have built a straight up Twitter competitor. It, they are going to have all of the Twitter responsibilities on top of the responsibilities you have as the publisher
0: yeah. of paid content. One of Substack's finely tailored policies, by the way, is we don't allow content that promotes harmful or illegal activities. So uh, any content that promotes harmful activities, that's uh, it's a very narrowly tailored free speech rule right there.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, you could tell from their, their policies that they haven't really enforced them because there's no subtlety at all, right? Like you, you look at yeah. like Twitter's policies even now, and it's incredibly dense. There's all this detail of what they exactly mean by these things. And Substack has these super broad things because they never actually enforce them.
0: Okay, so that's the perfect segue. Let's go over to our Twitter corner then. So Elon... I think is still CEO, although he did say in an interview last week uh, with a BBC journalist that he's promoted his dog to CEO so maybe he's technically uh, upheld that end of the bargain to step down.
1: This is kind of like, I believe the King of Thailand made his dog like the air minister or something <laughs> yeah. like that. Uh, yes. So,
0: so uh, it might as well be though given where we are. Uh, although this morning Twitter published a blog post that I swear must have been set for like delayed publication from the old guard and it only just went live because reading it is like I, going I'm through.
1: I'm pretty sure Yoel Roth wrote the first <laughs> yeah. version of this document, like, it's it, it's it amazing. Was, it's out of a time warp. It's it, it yeah. You're going through
0: a wormhole, a, yeah. a, a wormhole <laughs> through uh, to like uh, 2022, uh, July 2022, and you get this post that says "Freedom of speech not reach." An update to our enforcement philosophy, and it talks about how they believe uh, it's their responsibility to keep users on our platform safe. Uh, from content violating Twitter's rules uh, and so therefore consistent with their freedom of speech not reach policy they're gonna add publicly visible labels to tweets identified as potentially violating our policies letting you know that we've limited their visibility and this is um uh, this is like that click-hole meme where it's like heartbreaking the worst person you know made a great point because this is actually this is a, you know would be a really good policy to have much more visibility around when they're doing the kind of uh, reduction in M- Amplification because of a you know policy intervention, and you know they're saying they're working on the ability to allow people to appeal it when they get these reductions and these labels. Uh, all of that sounds uh it's, sounds it's great. fantastic. <laughs> right. It's actually
1: great. And the labeling stuff, like you and I've talked about this. I think like having transparency of when things are labeled and when their reach is limited is a fantastic step and absolutely appropriate. I, I have a theory here, which is there are a handful of remaining trust and safety people who have been highly promoted at Twitter who have benefited from the Musk world, but are now realizing this is going to be a, a horrible black stain on their LinkedIn. And so they are, you know, there's a line in Moneyball uh, where the general manager asks the, the manager, why aren't you playing the, the, the team like I want you? And he says, I'm playing the team in a way I can explain during job interviews. Right. <laughs> um, and I think this is what you're seeing is tw- trust and safety execs, the ones who are left at Twitter, playing the team in a way they can explain in job interviews that even if Musk doesn't like it, they need to now preserve their, they cannot be seen of going crazy MAGA, being part of painting the W, you know, of like all the nutty stuff He's done. Um, and so they're going to continue to, you know, they're going to do their jobs as best they can until they get fired, which is pretty much inevitable. Like, I, I think it's effectively, you know, being the head of content moderation for Elon Musk is going to be like the number two at Al Qaeda, right? Like, it is not a job that you can hold for a, a serious period of time. You do not get a gold watch at the end of, of that career.
0: Yeah, well, good work, team. This is one of the best uh, policy announcements we've seen from a uh, trust and safety team in in a in a little while. So uh, I, I, i you know, we wait to see what enforcement is going to be like. Um, but but it seems good. Back on Earth, one though, uh, things continue apace. Um, so a trailer of uh, Twitter CEO Musk's interview with uh, Fox News host Tucker Carlson was released, uh, in which Musk says that the degree to which various government agencies effectively had full access to everything that was going on. At Twitter blew my mind, um, and when Tucker asks if this includes people's DMs, he says yes. So uh, that's bananas. I don't know what to make of this claim that the uh, U.S. government is just reading people's DMs. It, you know, is it is it at all plausible, Alex?
1: I mean, I, you know, if that is what was happening, then that was a federal crime, right? Like it it would be a violation of the Stored Communications Act uh, for the government to just read people's DMs. They have to do so under specific lawful process. And if that's true, then Mr. Musk really should provide that evidence to a US attorney uh, so that the former uh, management of Twitter can be prosecuted under the Stored Communications Act. Do I think that's what happened? No. I think what's happening is that Musk has never really worked uh, in a situation where you have to get search warrants. And the fact that there was like an entire legal team whose job it was to take search warrants and wiretap requests um, and other kinds of lawful process around the world, and who then had to provide that data was kind of a shock to him. And he is conflating that with some kind of grand conspiracy. But yeah, that... Heads up, Mr. Musk, it turns out when you buy one of these platforms, you end up buying a bunch of legal responsibilities that have been defined by Congress. He could also be talking about FAA 702, which does provide, you know, like a lot of people have complained about, a gen- our you know, mutual friend Jennifer Granick uh, is a great voice on FAA 702, and that is up for renewal right now. If he has complaints about FAA 72, again, he should talk about that publicly and not just throw out random stuff to Tucker, because it is important for Americans to understand how 702 is being used. There are supposed to be limits there. It shouldn't be used against Americans, except you know, effectively by accident. Uh, and so if 702 is being abused, then he absolutely should be saying that publicly.
0: Um, but of course, it's crazy and a witch hunt uh, for the FTC to be investigating Twitter's privacy practices uh, against any of this background. And so this week, uh, the yes. GOP <laughs> subpoenaed Chair Lena Khan uh, saying that the FTC has abused its statutory and inf- authorities uh, in investigating Twitter's compliance with its privacy obligations because uh, everything is, yeah, We've, we've talked about this before and why it makes total sense that that investigation would be ongoing. There was a bunch of other stuff. NPR is no longer posting on Twitter. Uh, it seems like um, Twitter is either you know resisting, ignoring, or completely unaware of a bunch of takedown requests in Brazil. Was there anything in particular that you wanted to cover about Twitter uh, in the last week before we move on? Uh,
1: no, I mean, the, the NPR thing is not shocking. They don't like the state-sponsored label. Uh, a number of people have pointed out uh, that today was supposed to be the day uh, that SpaceX tested uh, the Starship, uh, which is a really, really cool rocket. That is... Much of the R and D of it was paid for by the U.S. government, and so you know, with uh 15 billion dollars in government rewards, I think SpaceX is much more state sponsored than NPR. uh, So I am looking for Musk to get the state sponsored label himself, you know, so that we're fairly applying
0: consistency. Sounds good. Okay. So a, an undated document in the discord leaks suggests that Russian fake account operators, um, are boasting that they are detected by social networks only about 1% of the time, uh, that they set up these fake accounts, which would mean a whole bunch of undetected accounts. Now there's all sorts of caveats here. Uh, nothing suggests that these accounts are having, you know, an impact or, um, it's entirely possible that these are, you know, that Russian boasting is not entirely connected, uh, to empirical reality, or it's possible that these, uh, 99% are the long tail of accounts uh, like, you know, bot 19645 uh, that is just liking posts without doing anything in particular. But were you surprised by this document um, and and anything to say about it?
1: Yeah. So this was really interesting. You know, so one of the interesting parts about it is it talks about different groups outside of the Prigozhin aligned groups that often get the the focus uh, from American Intel teams, you know, they're specifically talking about Glav uh, NIVT as a, a part of the Russian government, who then has contracts with a, a company called Fabrica, uh, which is running the infrastructure itself. So like you said, it is hard to know, you know, this is the the a document internal that the U.S. is saying that, you know, obviously one U.S. intelligence agencies have penetrated this part of the Russian government very deeply, right? Um, and so, you know, they're talking about how these people are communicating internally. Like you said, you know, Russia is an authoritarian state. And and one of the problems we continuously see in these situations is that uh, you have a lot of motivation when you're internal to an authoritarian state to overstate how effective you have been uh, in supporting the goals of, of of the great leader Putin in this case, and so you know just like the u s was caught flat footed in the, the during the the end of the Cold War because Russia was internally lying to itself about economic stuff, and so you know I, I think a number of people in the intelligence community know that just because you 're reading the other guy 's email doesn 't mean that people aren 't being misleading in that email that they have their own motivations. Um, we do have to put a discount on these claims, that being said, you know I think it is totally accurate that Russia has lots of uncaught accounts. As as Renee said in her her Mastodon posts, a lot of them are probably the things that you use to promote other content, right? Of the you know John Nine Numbers and such, which are the the kinds of accounts you use to vote things up and to try to to make things trend and such. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's an important thing, it, you know. The Problem here is there's no evidence that the U.S. government has actually talked to the platforms about this, so we're kind of back to the battle days of 2016 when you have you know TSSCI documents talking about foreign influence campaigns. Where if that if none of that information is making it out to the platforms that can actually take steps, then there's no way to have kind of a coordinated whole of society response here. And so I, I do think this raises interesting questions about which of these things were briefed out to the appropriate people at the platforms so that they can be looking for Fabrica specific bots and was there any technical component there like if they're this deep inside the loop then you would hope that the u.s intelligence community would have their hands on actual indicators and just one indicator of like here's one vpn server or here's one you know uh, phone number that is used could be the kind of thing that could tick that could uh trigger a really good investigation by one of the teams of the platforms that that do anti-IO work. And, you know, I think those are the questions that should be asked now is what did the government do with this knowledge? Or is it just floating around on these internal documents that got put into burning bags in Massachusetts that a 21-year-old was able to walk out?
0: And I guess the politics around that right now are not conducive uh, to the most, you know, uh, right.
1: But it's a good reminder, and I hope it's a reminder that uh, a number of people, in especially the U.S. House, take, which is like America's adversaries are still building this stuff. As much as they want to paint the idea that Russia did absolutely nothing in 2016, has done nothing since, that's just not true, right? Like, you know, every, Amer- every authoritarian state in this on this planet is trying to manipulate the Internet. Um, A lot of democratic states are trying to do it too, although generally with less aggressive means. And so, you know, these companies need to do that kind of work. And if you care about the U.S. having a leg up on its adversaries, then you're going to want the U.S. government to at least give heads up to the platforms of what's going on.
0: Okay, so in an update that is uh, wonderfully reminiscent of something like Veep, um, this is hilarious. The Arkansas bill that we talked about last week um, to impose uh, age restrictions on social media, it turns out no one's really sure what it covers. Um, So there's this uh, fantastic (laughs) exemption uh, in the law that kind of makes no sense at all. I'm just going to read it. Um, So uh, this does not include a social media company that allows a user to generate short video clips of dancing voiceovers or other acts of entertainment in which the primary purpose is not educational or informative, uh, does not meet the exclusion under another subdivision. So it, it seems to, although the wording is not entirely clear, exempt Platforms that allow short video clips of dancing voiceovers or other acts of entertainment, which you know seems to describe. What's the first platform uh, that, that that leaps to mind um, when you when you hear those words?
1: Mm, your favorite?
0: Yeah. Uh, so TikTok. Everyone's trying to ban it, but Arkansas, so you're like, you know what? We've got to make sure if they're not going to have access to it in other states, we really want those 16 year olds to be able to get through uh, with no impediments in Arkansas. So at the, Arkansas the, needs
1: their dances. Need that's their- right.
0: The bill sponsors believe that it. Should should co- I mean, it was intended uh, to cover platforms like Facebook, Instagram, TikTok and Snapchat. Um, but unfortunately, that might not be what they actually said uh, in the law. One other thing is that it absolutely doesn't and uh, wasn't intended to cover YouTube um, because uh, there's a different exemption for companies that offer cloud services and get less than 25% of their revenue from operating a social media platform, which would apply to Google and so therefore it does not apply to YouTube. Because nothing bad at all ever happens on YouTube. I don't know how they manage this. It's uh, it's amazing. Um, I just got to you know tip my hat to that one uh, for, for YouTube, honestly. Okay, can I get a uh, a legal corner announcement, please? Great. Uh, so. This Wednesday, the court is hearing argument in a case um, that could have significant ramifications for online speech. I've talked about it briefly a while ago on the podcast, uh, Counterman v. Colorado. It's a case about a man who, over the course of two years, sent hundreds, maybe thousands, of messages to Cole's Whelan, uh, a a local musician that he didn't know. Whelan never replied. uh, Often blocked the accounts, but he just continued to to send these messages. Some of them were threatening, saying, "You know, fuck off permanently" or "Die, don't need you." But many of them were simply confusing. or mundane like i'm going to the store would you like anything or random memes or frog emojis just completely delusional it was clear that this guy kind of thought he was in some sort of relationship with Waylon.
1: i mean there's nothing creepier than honey i'll be home soon <laughs> yeah, with the milk anything right. else i should get at the store <laughs> like that's actually i could see that being pretty terrifying
0: fantastic yeah. okay so this is uh this is it. A- so I, I understand <laughs> yeah, yes, right.
1: yes, for sure. It's like somebody who would probably not be the target of these, uh, that that would be very creepy for somebody to think they're in this parasocial relationship.
0: Right. Place. And so Waylon was understandably terrified and it caused significant emotional distress and a bunch of terrible ramifications for her life. This has been framed by the parties in the arguments and in the media as a case about threats. So were these messages sufficiently threatening and did, you know, Counterman subjectively intend to threaten Waylon or was it enough that it w- that the reasonable person would have interpreted these as threats? but I along with Genevieve Blaker and Eugene Bollock, have written an amicus brief to the court arguing that that's all wrong for a lot of the reason that you just said Alex which is these messages don't need to be explicitly threatening to be very scary and and have negative right. ramifications uh, this is a stalking case uh, as we argued, and he was in fact prosecuted for stalking not for making threats there's no constitutional right to send a barrage of unwelcome messages to a person that doesn't want to receive them that contributes nothing to public discourse and is not you know great for democracy and so it's a category error to sift through these two years, thousands and thousands of DMs and say, can we find one needle in the haystack that was explicitly threatening? You know, I should say to the listeners that our brief is in the minority, that it's not the uh, the dominant way that this case is being talked about. But we're really concerned that if the court conflates the two, these threats issues with these stalking issues, uh, it's going to accidentally eviscerate a whole bunch of online stalking protections um, with pretty dangerous consequences. So that's being argued on Wednesday morning this week. And we are just hoping for either a question from someone on the court or a footnote in the judgment to say, you know, no matter what they do, uh, we are not eviscerating stalking laws. So uh, stay tuned.
1: Should I be surprised that uh, you're on the same amicus as Eugene Volk?
0: <laughs> you you may be surprised, but it's also tactical uh because we want to get read by absolutely everyone on the court. And so uh by having a, a spread of views or a spread of uh, different people who who are making this argument. We just want four or five justices to to read the the brief and um and find the argument persuasive. So we'll see. Uh that's the strategy behind that.
1: Right. So he's your Ted Olson then. Like you you're the the Olson boys of uh uh, of First Amendment law.
0: Sure. That's, that's, that is exactly what we were going for. Perfect. All right. And I think that's it, uh, unless you had anything else to cover.
1: So I have a sports update. The oh. Sacramento Kings defeated the Golden State Warriors in game one uh, of the NBA playoffs. Uh, for those who don't know, I grew up in Sacramento, uh, which is actually uh, a horrible place to be a teenager, but a great place to be a parent of a teenager. And one of the only fun things I got to do is my dad had season tickets to the Sacramento Kings since they moved to Sacramento from Kansas City. And so I've personally probably seen 150 wins, 400 losses over the last several decades. And the Kings are finally in the playoffs again, and they beat Golden State, which is kind of my you know bandwagon new team and they are playing again tonight, so uh, it is an exciting, exciting game. Those of you who, even if you're not a big basketball fan, I do recommend tuning in because it's like two very exciting, fun teams that are playing. and, and uh, Sacramento is famously loud and crazy uh, place to play, um, and you totally see that during this playoff series. Uh, the cowbells are coming out, which is a whole story about the L. A. Lakers and you know uh, calling uh, Sacramento a cow town and such, um, which you know Golden State has never done. But certainly the the Northern California rivalry here is pretty awesome, and I hope this becomes like like a, a, you know, a rivalry that exists now for years uh, that you can have the Kings and the, the Warriors just kind of like the the Giants and A's back in the day.
0: Awesome. We will have to do a podcast uh, excursion uh, sometime. Um, to Sacramento? To, to watch a game, well, yes. We should. So
1: we should go to Sacramento and we can interview a bunch of state lawmakers uh, about uh, California's child safety laws and then go to game seven.
0: I mean- <laughs> Hitting all of my favorite activities um, I was trying, in to, one I was trying
1: trip. to figure out a way to get Stanford to pay for tickets, and I think
0: we <laughs> figured it out. Uh, we've done it. <laughs> so some of the tickets uh, they- are going for like,
1: like these tickets the tickets that my dad used to have unfortunately he's moved and, and given up the tickets are like 10k a pop now and so we'd have to do a lot of sponsor reads uh, to get this podcast to pay for, uh, for for two tickets
0: wow well if you've ever heard of a good cause surely this is it listener um, <laughs> write in and uh, sponsor our, you know to two people in need and with that this has been your moderated content weekly update this show is available in all the usual places including Apple Podcasts and Spotify show notes are available at law.stanford dot edu forward slash moderated content this episode literally wouldn't have been possible this week without the research editorial assistance and vocal sounds of john perino uh, the vocal uh, stylings
1: of john perino
0: necessary element of the show it would be a very weird show uh, without without that in there and it is produced by the wonderful brian pelletier special thanks also to justin fu and rob huffman see you next week